If you're a fan of motorcycle movies, and who isn't, then you're going to probably recognize this name. Sterling Noreen is an award-winning filmmaker and is well-known for his motorcycle films with the Backcountry Discovery Routes, as well as Helge Peterson's Globe Riders, BMW, and instructional videos. He's a filmmaker that embeds himself in the story, often as part of the adventure, enduring what the group has to endure, plus adding the tasks of capturing the events as they unfold with both camera and microphone. Today we meet Sterling and talk about adventure, film, law of attraction and the role it has law of attraction i'm talking about in not only making sterling's life but making his films as well i'm jim martin this is adventure rider radio stay with us we got a good one for you Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method, and the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio, made in the USA, and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as their top pick in a compressor shakedown. Their website, www.cyclepump.com. I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lanfear. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ross. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol DeVell. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com Sterling Noreen, and I spend my time between Seattle, Washington, and Flagstaff, Arizona, as an adventure motorcycle filmmaker. Sterling, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Good to be here. I really want to start is, I want you to tell me about high school. What was high school to you? High school? Wow, you're asking me to really go back here. (laughs) That was a long time ago, in the 1980s, in uh, a small town in West Michigan. And... High school was a, it was a transition period for me because we moved from one school district to another. We moved into a new house. Um, you know, it's high school. You're, you're growing up and going through the normal things. And one of the biggest things that was the most important for me from high school, well, there were a couple of things. Um, one of them was uh, punk rock music, really 
getting into that, that whole scene and rebellion and music. And the other thing was learning how to do video production. And, uh, I learned the basics of, of shooting and editing video for our high school cable news channel. And, uh, it was, uh, ended up being the start of, uh, my really long career in that field. Why video though? What is it that got you interested in video? What got you looking at it in high school? Well, you know, like, like a lot of kids that age, I had really no idea what I wanted to do for a career. I, I mean, or maybe the problem was I had too many ideas. There were a lot of things that I really liked. And when I took the media productions class, I realized that it was a combination of a lot of things that I liked. I liked music and, you know, you can certainly use music in, in video production. I liked uh, the creativity. I liked the visual aspect of it. And I also liked the technical aspect of it. Um, so it appealed to like these different natures that I couldn't decide around and all in one package. And then the thing that I think really, a couple of things that really sold it to me were um, I interviewed the mayor of the town that I grew up in. And I was a 16 year old punk rock kid with a mohawk and dyed hair and funny. And yet she took the time out of her day <clears throat> to meet me to do an interview about our town and some of the things that were happening. And she treated me with respect. And I realized, wow, you know, this camera can take me places. I mean, look at me, I'm just this punky little kid and I'm interviewing the mayor of the town, you know, that I live in. How cool is that? And so I realized that this, that if I, you know, were to go into that as, as a, a career or a field that it would probably take me to some pretty interesting places. I think often in life we only have that a few um, maybe instances or a few uh, circumstances that happen to us or people that we meet, like you're saying, just this interview. Is, is she a person that you would say that sort of sent your life in a certain trajectory? I, I think that, you know, that that definitely was the case. Um, I, I would give more credit to my media teacher, a guy named Roger Scudder, who really developed this this outstanding media productions program that, that we had access to. And I, you know, I lived in a somewhat small community, wasn't a big school. It wasn't a class a school. And the, the program that he put together, he did it out of his love for the students and his passion for, for teaching. And it, and it was really outstanding. There was, there wasn't another program like that in the entire state of Michigan. We were really, really fortunate to have access to that kind of equipment at that time to, to learn how to do the work we did. So he was one of many, many mentors, I would say, that I've had through my life that have really uh, influenced me in that way. Well, as a young kid, you grew up riding, uh, what, a, a mini bike or a small motorcycle around, um, was it your family farm? Yeah, I lived on a, a blueberry farm. It wasn't our farm, but, you know, we, we had a, a farmhouse that my mother rented and and it was her and my brother and I, she was a, a single parent and we grew up on this blueberry farm. And when I was eight years old, I got the surprise of my life when I got a Honda 50 uh, mini bike for my birthday, brand new, and was not expecting that at all. And it just changed my life. It became the most fun thing that I did. And I spent years riding that little mini bike around the trails in the woods and I would pack up my knapsack with a sandwich and an apple. And, and I would go, you know, I would think looking back, I probably rode five to eight miles away in the woods through the trails. And, and that's a long ways for a little kid. 
to go alone on a, on a motorcycle. And so I think that's kind of where it all started. Your first adventure motorcycle. Yeah. You know, you've got what I think many people call the ideal job um, that you've designed for yourself, made for yourself. We get people continuously asking us how they can make money on the road. And we hear all the time people are looking to try and get into this field um, well, of, of adventure motorcycling in a way that they can make their living. And I think it's, it's probably the same as no matter what you do, if you were into you know canoeing or running or anything, we have this desire to do what we love for a living, which may or may not work out, I think, in a lot of cases. But that's not where you headed right away. Way. You spent a long time, you know, uh, sharpening your teeth in other areas. I mean, you, at one point you ended up on a cruise ship. Yeah, I worked in the film and video industry for for many years, developing my my skills and talents, and and paying my dues and working my way up through the different ranks and roles of of production. You know, before I did, but I did in, in adventure motorcycling. So it didn't it didn't come right away, but it was a you know an ongoing process throughout the years and. You know, at the at the base level, at the bottom bottom line, I I always had this vision of working in some kind of adventure film and video production. I mean, that was sort of my dream from the beginning. If I go, you know, way back to those high school days, um, I remember seeing a video from Greenpeace where someone was out in a raft and they were protecting whales from being captured and killed. And they were driving around in this Zodiac out in the seas and there was a cameraman on the front of the boat filming filming this. And I thought, that's the job I want. I want to be out there on these adventures, in nature, doing something positive, saving the world and making you know movies about it. And so that was has, had always been in the back of my mind as I was working in corporate video and industrial video and the software industry and just looking for those opportunities on the side to to combine my love for adventure and travel with the skills that I was building. And uh, you're right, at one point, and I ended up on a cruise ship, of all things. Um, and how that happened, it's just one of those forks in life that that it's almost like destiny. Um, it was 1999, right before the millennium. And I was a freelance video editor in Seattle at that time, and into into adventure motorcycling at that time. And um, the work was slowing down. It was kind of the, the dot-com crash. And I was looking into spending another long winter in Seattle, which is rainy, dark, and cold. And and a couple months earlier, I had seen an advertisement in the back of a video magazine about working on a cruise ship as a video programmer. And so I sent off my resume and never heard anything back. And then right before the turn of the millennium, I was trying to, um, you know, do some New Year's resolutions or think about the future or what could I do different. And some someone said, you know, you need to write down your mission statement on a piece of paper. And I thought about it and put some energy into it. And I, what I ended up writing on this piece of paper was, I want to get paid to travel around the world and make movies. And within a few days, I got a call from this cruise line asking me if I wanted to come work on a cruise ship that was leaving in nine days and I would travel around the world for the next six months and, and make movies on board the ship. And I just thought, how cool is that? And so I signed up for that, that adventure. You mentioned destiny and, and you, what you're describing here is almost like, um, that many would have described many years ago as a, a, a law of attraction. People still talk about the law of attraction. Do you believe in that? Totally big believer in the, in, in that. 
So you think because you wrote your mission statement, that's what sort of brought that opportunity to you? I think if you live in a place where you, you connect with the energy and the feelings of the things that you want, even before you have them, that it's that it's from that place of connection and energy that you draw those things into your life. You know, there's a couple of different ways of looking at that. And I'm certainly interested in discussing this with you because um, some people will look at it and go, oh, that's, you know, total hogwash. They don't believe in a lot of attraction. I've got friends like that as well. Um, but there's also what I, what I call, um, what I refer to as the Volkswagen effect. And I've made this up myself is just that you never know how many Volkswagens are on the road until you drive one. And then all of a sudden they're everywhere. They were never there sure. before. And it could be with opportunity too, isn't it? I mean, you learn to have your eyes open or you, you have your eyes open for whatever reason, whereas otherwise you'd probably walk right past it. You know, I can, I can see where this kind of a, you know, conversation sounds illogical or nonsensical to some people like, yeah, sure. Right. That's not how the universe works. But all I can say is from my experience, you know, I've seen it happen several times throughout my life where, where that, that kind of thing seems to be, seems to be going on in the background. And it's just, you know, I believe that when you put yourself out there and you, you make a choice to, 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 to pursue your, your passion, the universe will step in with, with opportunities, you know, that, that would not have otherwise occurred. Would you have considered yourself a, an environmentalist or sort of a, an activist when you were thinking about filming for, um, for Greenpeace or, or even National Geographic? Yeah. Back in those days, I really, I, I, I did consider myself that, and, you know, the first thing I did when I graduated from college with my film and video communications degree was I applied to National Geographic and I applied to Greenpeace. And I still have both of those rejection letters, you know, here in my office. I keep them keep them around as some kind of a, a reminder. Um, but the funny thing is uh, the summer after graduation, I took off backpacking around the West just to uh, have a little little travel experience and celebrate, you know, being out of out of college. And and I did end up working for Greenpeace in Boulder, Colorado as an activist and, you know, and it. And it it wasn't really that exciting, to be honest. We were more just raising money and going door to door and, you know, talking to people, which was important. But, you know, it wasn't uh, the dream job that I was was looking for. You weren't hanging off the Zodiac with a camera and the spray hitting you in the face. <laughs> no, the, 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 the biggest opportunity I had was that there was uh, a direct action, as they call it, you know, like when they go out and do something like that at uh, the Rocky Flats nuclear facility outside of Denver. And so they, you know, they had created some billboard art and they unveiled it. And I was out there with the video camera and I interviewed people and interviewed the artists. And, you know, so I did sort of make a little video for Greenpeace that was that was kind of fun. You also sort of through serendipity or through law of attraction, you ended up making another film by bumping into someone. Kind of, yeah, I think oh. you're referring to the Mexico trip. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um, and that was a whole another level of seeing that kind of a, a, a law in action. Um, that's probably one of the biggest stories to date in, in my life and one of the most important. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. I mean, you're, you're on your, your personal trip. It was a vacation, was it? Well, not exactly. It was, uh, I had an objective in mind that, that was, you know, relating to, to movie making. And, uh, it was 2009 and by then, I had already made several motorcycling movies, uh, mostly with Globe Riders and Helge Peterson. Um, we had been to Iceland. We had traveled 
the Silk Road um, across Russia. And we had just completed, you know, a 71 day trip in Vietnam and Indochina, that whole area and several hours of television and movies on, on those trips. And I was kind of feeling like I wanted to test myself and put the skills that I had learned as a traveler and a motorcyclist and a filmmaker into a new context, into a solo journey. I wanted to do something that wasn't guided, where we didn't have an itinerary, where we didn't have guides and helpers and fixers, where I was just really going to be out there on my own doing the best job I could to kind of document myself and my journey. And I was inspired by, you know, it wasn't a completely original idea. I was inspired by, uh, there was an Indian film that had come out around that time um, by an Indian filmmaker, Gaurav Jani, and it was called Riding Solo to the Top of the World. Um, but he documented his his travels up in the Himalayas um, on, on an old motorcycle, filmed himself, and I just thought that, that was really cool. And there were also those survivor shows on television with like Bear Gryllis where they were out filming themselves in survival situations. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to do that on a motorcycle. And I chose to go to Mexico because it's close to the United States and I didn't have to ship my motorcycle anywhere. And I'd heard a lot of cool things about riding opportunities in Baja and in this place called the Copper Canyon. So I made a plan to ride down there. I left the U.S. on January 20th, 2009. That was the day that Barack Obama uh, became the president and headed down to Mexico. And as I was traveling down there and filming myself, filming my ride, interviewing people I met along the way, um, there was also a part of me that was looking for a story that didn't have anything to do with me per se. I didn't want this movie to be just about me and my adventure and look at me and look at what I'm doing and what I did. I also really wanted to find a really positive story in Mexico, um, something that I could share with the world to counteract all the negative press and stories that you hear in the news all the time about Mexico and how dangerous it is to travel there. Um, I guess you could say it was my belief as a world world traveler, having traveled to several countries at that point, that you know I've always felt welcome in the places that I've went around the world. And I expected, once again, you know, law of attraction, expected no different in Mexico. And I knew that if I just rode long enough and far enough, I would find some amazing things going on down there that no one necessarily knew about and that I could perhaps help share that story with the world. And so what happened is I rode down Baja and took the ferry over to the mainland for part two of the journey into the Copper Canyon. And I still hadn't really found the story that I was looking for. I was having a great adventure. I was surviving. I was meeting interesting people. But I didn't really find that that good news, positive hope story. And I went to the Copper Canyon, which was an adventure in itself, having never been there before. And I was nervous and scared about all the things I had heard and the dangers and, you know, riding by myself and filming myself. And I made it all the way into the canyon to the bottom of the deepest gorge in North America to the small town of Urique, parked my motorcycle, the battery died, I got food poisoning, I was sick, I was laying in bed 
just literally at the end of my rope, like, what do I do now? Where do I go next? Is this the end of my trip? I mean, because I, I was planning to go home after that. I didn't have another destination down there. But, but hang and on, so was, this is this is where adventure really starts, though, isn't it? I mean, as a filmmaker, don't you get kind of excited totally. and you go, wow, this is awesome. You do, but you got to give those other feelings their, their due as well. Like I, I really was at the end of my rope and it was kind of horrible and I was sick and, you know, had been sort of living in this, like, I don't know, just riding by yourself that intensely for days after days, you kind of go into this different headspace and, and, but you're right. That is where adventure comes. And I think, you know, this is part of a different part of this conversation, but we can talk about like, I I've sort of trained myself to sniff out those scenarios and keep them alive for as long as they last because a lot of times our tendency is to like, when the adventure starts, you want to go the other way and get out of it as quickly as you can. Um, and, you know, and I've seen that happen a lot, of, a lot of times, but, you know, so I was kind of, I was, you know, having an adventure. There's no doubt about it. Um, and it, it was just discomforting. I think mostly because I was sick for a couple of days, I was laid up in this little, little cabin down there and couldn't, couldn't move. And the only other person that was there was this crazy gringo American that was a long distance runner from Colorado. And I didn't see him much because he was always out running and he would show up in the afternoon with his dog and he'd take off in the morning and he'd go run 15, 20 or more miles in this rugged ass environment. You know, it's like a 6,000 foot canyon and gorges and rocks. And, um, and the reason he was down there doing that is in part because the, the native Indian indigenous people that live there, they're called the Tarahumara and, They've been there for centuries, um, living in, in the Copper Canyon, in the, in, in the canyons, because they kind of, when the Spanish came, came to Mexico, the conquistadors, and they sort of colonized that part of the world, these Indians, rather than fight them, they retreated into the canyons and into the high country and sort of preserved their culture that way. Um, and in the process, they became some of the best foot runners in the world. You know, it's just they they walk and they run to to get around in that rugged environment since day one and so um they're known for being some of the best runners in the world and this guy was down there um running with them you know learning some things about them and the most incredible thing was that he had created a 50 mile ultra marathon that was designed to bring the modern, say, sort of Western world of runners and running ideologies into contact with this indigenous form of running as a, as a way of promoting and preserving their running culture. And so he had created this, this race in the bottom of the canyon that, that happened once a year. And it was coming up in a week. And he asked me if I wanted to stick around and film it. And that right there was like destiny. Once again, that was the story that I was looking for. Did you know it when he offered it to you? Did you all of a sudden the light go off and you go, okay, this is it? I thought it would be a pretty cool thing. And it was, it would be worth my while to stick around for a week and ride further and explore further and come back and film it. Um, I can't say it completely went off in my head. It, It didn't, it didn't strike me 
as as much as it did after I saw it. Once I saw it and experienced it and filmed it, then then I knew without a doubt what an amazing, beautiful thing it was. Um, but I didn't quite know the impact it would have have on me before before that. But but it was enough that I stayed down there for a week and rode around different parts of the canyon and then came back to Arike for for race day. Showed up and and saw it and filmed it. And what do you do to film it? You just sort of go along with it. I guess you you have the skills at that point to sort of wing it. Yeah, it was, uh, it was really, actually, it was really fun and interesting. It was uh, a highlight of my motorcycle filmmaking career because I basically followed the runners on my motorcycle. And the way it worked is the race begins and ends in the downtown of this small village of Arike. And the course is kind of like a Y formation. So the runners will, will go out and run one direction, turn around, come back, run through town, go back, run a different direction, turn around, come back, go through town, and then run like a third way for a little ways and come back through town. So you could either stay in town and see the runners coming and going in different directions all day long and see who's in the front and who's in the lead. Or you could do what I did, which was hop on my motorcycle, try to get up ahead, position myself, film some of the guys coming past and and women and children. It was all ages and very diverse race. Um, and I did that. I followed them as best as I could on the on the roads. And there were some single track sections that I couldn't properly um, film them from. But I got enough coverage to, to to thoroughly, you know, document enough of the race that I that I needed. And that, you know, for my first uh, viewing of it. Do you know what you're going for when you're doing that? I mean, I mean, do you have an idea in your head of what the story is about as you're, you know, because you're basically starting at the, the the go gun of the race. Do you have an idea what the story is about or do you do you shoot and then decide afterwards? Well, I think in this case, the the story was my motorcycle trip down to Mexico and riding solo and looking, you know, looking for a positive story. And the race, it seemed, was going to be that, that positive story. And so it wasn't like tell the whole history of the race and everything about the race, but, but sort of get the basics of it. And so I knew I just have to, to film the race as best as I can. And I have to get an interview with this guy because he's the one to properly tell me the story of the race. And so that was kind of my perspective. Just, just, you know, get the visuals as best as I can of the race, film some, some of the, the community and the, the people sort of hanging out in town and a little bit of what, what, what goes on in the town and then interview uh, this fellow, Micah, Micah true after it was all said and done. And then, you know, then go back and build the story from there back in the editing room. What was the final product? It was a, a movie that's called beyond the border riding solo in Mexico. And it's uh, it was released the, the following year in 2010 and you can find it on Amazon or Vimeo. And you got a couple of awards for it as well? Yeah, it got a few awards. It was shown at some film festivals down in Mexico. And, you know, not a not a huge movie, but a lot of people have said that they really like it. And it's one of their favorite movies of mine, I think, because of the, you know, that it was a very independent movie. You know, it was just, just me on my bike doing doing my thing. And at this point, are you working as a full-time filmmaker? Pretty much. Um, yeah, I, I, that was 2010 was a really big year for me. Um, 
2007 was when I quit my last full-time job. I was a, a documentary editor for five years for a company in out of Seattle, um, and during which time I edited and co-produced like 80 hours of broadcast television. So I really honed my my storytelling skills, you know, in, in, through that experience. But then in 2007, um, I had to stop working full time for anyone else because it was just too hard to 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 do my own motorcycling movies and projects on the side while working a full-time job. And so I made the decision to just do it, do it, go for it on my own. And, you know, it was a, it was a slow start, but it was enough to keep me going. And then by 2010, things really ramped up. And that was, that was a really big, a big year. I had finished the Mexico movie and was releasing that. Um, I also did a instructional off-road riding skills DVD with Rawhide Adventures out of California and that was the first backcountry discovery route movie, Washington State. And I did a documentary for BMW motorcycles on top of all that and a Globe Riders Africa project all within the space of one summer. Wow, that's, that's, that's very, very busy. This type of thing always makes me think of many years ago, I spoke with a guy named Gary Sowerby. And Gary Sowerby was a long distance driver is what he was. And he used to do these great long runs. And he was sponsored by I think GMC or something like that. But I, I always remember him mentioning that there were times like he, he would go through three years of not making a dime. And then one year he might make three or $400,000. So, so he said, it's, you know, it's what the a feast and famine type business. Feast or famine. Yeah. Yeah. Feast or famine. And is that sort of what the filmmaking business is? Cause that's what I sort of picture it. You have to put so much groundwork in before you actually get your product finished. Yeah. It's, um, you know, again, I didn't do it all at once. I, you know, I, I was always working in the industry. Um, and then, you know, started doing the motorcycling videos on the side back in 2001 and I still was working in the industry until 2007. So there was like a period of six years where I was doing moto films and DVDs on the side and sort of getting getting all of that stuff established and figuring out the, the business opportunities and models and how to sell things and how much and where and building those channels so that when I did quit my full-time job, you know, I was already off and running in this other area. And then from there, it was just, you know, uh, a, a strategy of, sort of not having all my eggs in one basket and being sort of somewhat diverse. Like I would do moto films and documentaries of tours, but I would also supplement my income with producing commercials and promo videos for sponsors and, you know, players in the motorcycle industry and then do some instructional DVDs and kind of try to spread it out a little bit. And then once you get enough products out there in the marketplace, in my case, movies, you start to build up a little back-end revenue from the long tail of work that you've done several years ago, and you've got a little bit coming in from that to supplement what you're, you know, making day to day. And so, you know, it's yeah, there's an element of feast or famine to it, for sure, but you know, it's worth the ride. You've developed a niche really for yourself that didn't exist. I mean, you didn't actually carve it out of any way. You had to sort of build this in this industry. I'm sure there's other examples in other industries, but I, I guess you sort of grew with the adventure motorcycling industry as well. I mean, you sort of got in at the, the ground floor, built yourself a niche, and now, of course, you are the go-to name for this sort of filming. Yeah, I think in some ways it's a niche within a niche. You know, it's, it is. It's a very small niche 
to be doing this, this kind of work and adventure motorcycling and filmmaking. And, you know, if, if there was anyone that I would think about, you know, com- comparing it to, and it's kind of timely with, with his passing, one, one person would be Warren Miller, you know, with his ski movies. Um, I've always felt a little bit of a connection, like, like being like the Warren Miller of adventure motorcycling movies. I got into it at the right time when, when it wasn't even a market the way it is today. Um, and it was more just wanting to document this thing that I loved doing and share the stories of, of my tribe of adventure riders with the world. You know, like I want to, I wanted to be that person that could help the rest of the world understand who we are. This is who we are. This is why we ride and how we ride and what we think about and where we go and what motivates us and to sort of tell the stories from the inside um, in the way that like ski movies or, or like Bruce Brown with surf movies, you know, that, that kind of thing was somewhat of an inspiration to me. You mentioned about the backcountry discovery film when they were talking about making the first backcountry discovery out or, or publicizing it, that they approached you for making a film. Well, what happened was a friend of mine um, approached me and said, Hey, I, I know these two motorcyclists that are, interested in creating a Washington backcountry discovery route. And I want to introduce you to them. And the reason he did that was because the prior year, like in 2008, myself and Hauge Peterson and a couple of guys from tour tech went down and rode the Oregon backcountry discovery route. And that was the first BDR. We had nothing to do with it. It was created by some motorcyclists that live in Oregon back in the nineties and we went down and rode it in 2008. We made some videos about it. It was, you know, it was a really cool experience. People liked the videos we made. And then a couple years later in 2010, um, my friend said that there were these two guys interested in making a, a Washington version and I should meet them. And so I did. I went and met them. They were Bryce Stevens from Seattle, Washington, and Andrew Cull from Seattle. And they were two adventure riders. Um, had a, had a background in, in business and trails and mapping, and they were definitely the right guys to, to pull off a project like this. Um, they had support from the Overlanding community. Uh, the Overland Expo um, had awarded them the Overland flag for 2010, which was like a contest where you propose to make a route, and they'll you know they'll give you some, their backing and their support to to do it. And so they had. Uh, they had that support and they were, they were going to do this, this, uh, Washington BDR. And I met him and I said, Hey, we should make a movie about it. I should introduce you to tour tech. Maybe they would like to, uh, to back it or be involved. And I brought everyone to the table and everyone thought it was a great idea. We decided to go out that summer and film the, the inaugural running of the first BDR, the Washington BDR. And that's really where it all started. And now you've done what, six or seven? We've done eight. Eight. We're, we're going to go out and film the ninth one in April. And and uh, the one, you, you sent me a link for the East one. Is that released yet? It's being released right now. All throughout this, this winter, I think the first show is the beginning of February, and then it continues for a couple months after that in dealerships across the country. So it'll be first um, in the dealerships, and then you'll be able to watch it online after that. So when you're going to, and to, to film a backcountry discovery route, because you have enough of them under your belt now, you've probably got, uh, you know, a sort of a method for that in particular, I would assume. What do you look for? What, what story are you telling when you hit the road with this? 
Well, the method has definitely evolved over the years. Um, these these films, the, the whole backcountry discovery route program has, has I think, really exceeded our initial goals um, and become a, a lot bigger and more important in the in the world of adventure motorcycling than any of us envisioned when we when we set off on that journey a long time ago. So, um, our methods have improved. The, the quality level of the movies that we're making has improved along the way dramatically. Um, but the story, you know, as much as it's been refined, it's it's really a couple of things. It's to to show the route itself so that riders that are interested can can watch the movie and get a, very, a pretty clear understanding of what they're in for so that they can know some of the challenges that they might face but also get excited by some of the, the really cool discoveries that they can make along the way and we also want to portray um, the the journey that we have um, as the team doing it for the first time you know in a way that that brings to life some of the, the the drama of of a long distance motorcycling trip the characters involved things that happen the comedy the hard times when someone gets hurt or something gets broken and just wrap it all up in a good story that's inspiring that's entertaining and educational you cover a lot of history in it too and, and i guess as part of the um uh, i guess extolling the virtues of the backcountry discovery routes as they are is that they go through these places that i mean really every place has a bit of history to it but i did notice you touch on it a fair bit yeah that's one of my favorite aspects of doing a bdr is is uh learning about the history of these 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 places that we connect with when we ride out in the backcountry and i mean there's just all kinds of opportunities to learn about little old west mining towns and um you name it i mean there's just so many so many little historical things along the way and, and then on the recent bdr the mid-atlantic bdr it's a whole different level of history back there because of course you've got you know history going back to the 1600s and 1700s and you know the revolutionary war and the civil war and the monuments and the battlefields and you know all of all of those kinds of things as well so that's you know, that's an important part of a, a BDR trip is is learning about and seeing and experiencing those places along the way. Yeah, and it makes it so that it's not just about finding the next obstacle that you're coming to or the uh, the roughest road or maybe the, the tightest twisties on, on an asphalt road. It makes it so that you're, you're I think in my mind, you're, you're really experiencing the ride rather than just the ride, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I totally agree. That's a big, a big part of it. Just going to stop for a quick break and be right back. Stay with us. We got more coming up. I know where you need to be May 18 to 20th. You need to be in Arizona because Overland Expo West is going on again this year, and it's going to be bigger than what it was even last year. They're expecting over 14,000 people to attend. So, Overland Expo is all about overlanding. It's everything to do with going out and traveling places, but there's so much more there. I mean, that's so general. They've got such a list of things going on, it's even tough to go through myself. But for overlanding, for vehicles, they've got all kinds of things going on. But motorcycle-specific, they've got loads. They've got a new motorcycle expedition uh, skills area where you can learn and practice skills. Uh, There's just so much going on. 190 classes, 170 presenters. I mean, we're talking a really big event. There'll be all kinds of people 
people there to talk to, all kinds of exhibitors there to look at stuff and all kinds of vehicles, both motorcycles and four by fours and all other kinds of vehicles to check out and see how other people are doing it, how other people are overlanding. Now, remember, you have to get your tickets online. So go by their website, www.overlandexpo.com. Get yourself signed up. And of course, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio so they know it's working for them. That's www.overlandexpo.com. I often get emails or messages with people asking me about the IMS pegs and sort of wondering which peg to choose. And it's a tough question because, you know, it depends on your own style of riding, what bike you're riding, what you want to do with it, what you're comfortable with. Um, I don't think you'll go wrong with any of their foot pegs. They're all cast certified 17-4 stainless steel. They're all incredibly well made, very, very tough pegs and, and built to the highest qualities. The one that I'm running is the Rally Pegs. The Rally Pegs have a sharp tooth design. They're wider than stock. They're a beautiful peg. I love them. My boots stick to them. I mean, I just feel like I have so much contact. But maybe the sharp tooth design isn't for you. And they may not be for everyone. But have a look at their ADV-1 and their ADV-2 pegs. They're a flatter tooth design. They're larger. And they sport the ADV moniker, which is a good indicator of the intended use, right? ADV. Um, But if you're wondering, if you don't know, contact IMS. Tell them, first of all, tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio so they know that supporting the show is well worth their while. But ask them, tell them what bike you ride and what you expect and and get their recommendation on what pegs that that are right for you. And if you can go to a show or something and see them there, well, that's even better because you get to touch and feel the whole bit. www.imsproducts.com We talked sort of just briefly when you were talking about being in Mexico and you were sick and you were down and out. One of the things I want to ask you about was because, see, I, I'm a big fan of filmmakers and photographers when they go on expeditions because to me, I see that that hard work that has to go into the documenting of it as you go and actually be a participant at the same time. And it's one thing to film a race from a, you know, from the stands or from a, you know, press pass where you're in the pits or whatever. But it's another thing to actually do the adventure, I think, and capture it at the same time. And how do you keep yourself, how do you remind yourself to get those shots when you, for instance, like when you're in Mexico and you're suffering? Yeah, very much. Um, well, I think, you know, having had a lot of experience over the years in, in video production and storytelling, when I started applying that craft to adventure motorcycling, I kind of knew what to expect. I mean, I knew the amount of work that I was in for. I knew what it would take to make the kind of movie that I wanted to make. And so I think number one, you know, anyone that would want to do this, you just, you just have to be a hundred percent committed from the beginning and understand that if you're really going to make something that's, that's outstanding or high level of quality, really engaging, it's going to change your journey. There's no doubt about it. Your, your journey is going to become about documenting the journey more than just experiencing the journey. And yeah, that's, that's, that's a challenge. And a lot of people don't necessarily want to do that. And that's okay. I I completely understand that. Um, I've seen a lot of people that get into cameras and bring cameras with them and then very quickly realize, you know what, I'm not having any fun here. I'm not living in the journey. I'm spending more time thinking about the portrayal of the journey. And I get that. Um, but for me again, you know, my ticket to be there has always been to document the journey. 
in a lot of these rides that I've done, there's no way that I would have been able to afford them or have the opportunity to, to do them other than to be the one that's there documenting them. So I guess in a way that was the price that I paid, but you know, that said, I love doing it too. So it's not, you know, it's not a bad price to pay, but it definitely changes the experience to, to be out there, um, you know, concentrating on, on filming. And it's, you know, anyone that's worked with me in any of these projects, I think they would, they would say that, you know, Sterling boy, he's working all the time. And, and it's true. Like when I'm on a ride and I'm filming, I am in filmmaker mood, like from sun up until sundown. And then I'm in the tent, like offloading footage or watching stuff or, you know, for sometimes up to like 70 days at a time. And I might come home with maybe a hundred hours of footage on a big project like that. Um, that's definitely committing. And then the other point to make is that if you think that's a lot of work, what some people don't necessarily realize is that the back end is also really where there's a lot of work. You come back from this journey. Now you've got to edit it all together into a movie. And that takes, you know, five times as long as the actual trip took to do. And so that's a whole nother aspect of, uh, of the production that, you know, that's, that's important and where the story is really made in my opinion. Yeah. Capturing it is just sort of a, a small step in the whole process, isn't it? You know, it's just, it's, it's getting all of the material that you can and as much of it as you can so that you have as many options as you can have when you go into the editing room and try to build that story. Because, you know, when it comes down to it and you're in the editing room, you have to build the story out of the material that you have, not what you wish you had. So this film in Mexico that you made about the runner, um, you said you had to go back to film this? Yeah. So what happened was, um, I had, you know, I had my experience in Mexico. I had seen that cool little race in the bottom of the canyons and I, and I went home to edit together my, my movie about motorcycling in Mexico. And a few months after I got back, a book came out and it was called born to run a hidden tribe, super athletes and the greatest race the world had never seen. And everybody started telling me, you have to read this book. You have to read this book. There's like this guy in this book. I think it was the guy you met in the Copper Canyon. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And I'm just like working on my motorcycling movie and finishing it. Several months went by and I finally read the book. And I'm like, holy crap, that's the guy I met in the Copper Canyons. <laughs> and by then, that book had skyrocketed to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. It was huge in the running world. It's, it's on Amazon's 100 books to read during your lifetime. A huge impact in the running world that basically started the whole barefoot running revolution. Yeah, I remember them talking about it. They were talking about the, the fact these guys are running ridiculous distances that sort of sort of unthought of distances, wasn't it? Ridiculous distances and homemade sandals made out of like tire treads yeah. and leather. It was big news at the time when this book came out. I remember it being on. Yeah. It was really big news. And, and the book was so compelling. The character of the, the main character in the book, this guy that started the race, Micah True, also known as Caballo Blanco, the white horse, that was what they called him down in Mexico. Um, his character in the book was just fascinating and compelling and interesting. And, you know, he, he, I think his character was what really made the book for a lot of people. And so he developed almost this mythic sort of aura around him in the race. 
And I stayed in touch with them um, through Facebook and over the next two or three years as the book became more popular and as his fame grew, which was really a double-edged sword for him because he didn't care about being famous whatsoever. But if it could help his race, he was willing to bear that burden because he cared about the Tarahumara Indians. And the way he organized his, his race was that anyone that finished it would win 500 pounds of corn. That's a big deal for a lot of people that live down there. And any gringos that managed to make it that far and run in the race and win the corn would give their corn back to the communities. And so, you know, he wanted his race to grow. And the book, you know, brought a lot of attention to his race while at the same time exaggerating a lot of things about the Tarahumara, about Micah. And he wanted to set the record straight. And so he approached me about making a longer documentary film about the race and his life and the whole thing. He's like, Sterling, you came down here, you filmed my race, you know, before the book came out, I trust you. I know your intentions. I want you to tell this story. And I was incredibly honored. You know, he had ESPN contacting him and HBO and all trying to get down there. And he picked little old me because I was the one that actually rode down there on my motorcycle, you know, not even looking for him or his story. And in 2012, I agreed to go back down there and start a long, start filming a longer documentary project about him and the race and the Tarahumara. And so I, I went back down there. I spent three weeks with him. Um, by then I had upgraded my bike. I was on an F800 GS and I followed him around the canyons for three weeks. I f went to the villages as he, you know, promoted the race and talked it up and got everyone to come. And on race day, I think probably 500 Tarumara Indians showed up that day. It was, it was incredible. It was a big, beautiful celebration of running. And, and it just, it was every, his dream had come true. His dream had come true in a very powerful way. And it meant a lot to me because I had seen it, you know, when it was just a small, small thing. And we filmed the race, we said our goodbyes, you know, I said I'd get back in touch with him in a couple of weeks, we'd continue filming, etc. I go home and two weeks later, I get a message from his girlfriend that he's missing. He went for a trail run in the Gila wilderness in New Mexico, and they haven't seen him for two days and there's a search and rescue. So I hopped on a plane, I got down there, rented a car, drove out to the middle of the wilderness to join the search and rescue party for him. And by the time I got there, they had found him. Um, he was dead. He passed away while he was running on the trails. And they were in the process of recovering his, his body and bringing it back. So all the footage that I had with, with him and the race and his interviews was, was all I was ever going to get. It was all anyone was ever going to get. So at that point, the project just transitioned into more of like a, a legacy film about him and his life and what he did with the race. And so um, we spent a couple years putting it together, did a Kickstarter fundraising campaign and, and released it. It's called Run Free, The True Story of Caballo Blanco. And it came out in 2015 and uh, told told his, his story the way it was meant to be told, the way he would have wanted it told. He died running. Did, did he fall or was it a heart thing or something like that? He, he had an enlarged heart. It was, uh, 
a condition that he'd had, you know, all of his life. And it just finally caught up to him. Um, you know, some people say that if you run those distances, it can affect your heart that way. Your heart's a muscle. And if you use it too much, it can grow too big. Other people say, you know, he lived longer than he would have lived if he hadn't run. But, you know, the important thing for me wasn't how he died, but how he lived, you know, that he lived life the way he wanted to live and he made a difference. And, uh, you know, hopefully that that's, you know, what comes through in the movie. That's what I, what I tried to show. Cause he was a very, a very powerful figure in my life and in a lot of people's lives, even non runners, you know, from around the world, just as, as someone who had a vision and, and a dream and lived, lived life in a, in a very unusual and beautiful way. What sort of distances are we talking about? Well, the race that he organized is a 50 mile ultra marathon. Um, but I've seen and known runners that run that race that have run up to 200 miles. It just seems impossible. I mean, it's just so incredibly far. Well, I, you know, I've never been much of a runner myself, but after I saw the race in 2009, the, the next year I went back home and I started running and I ran a marathon within a year and it just blew my mind. I never, never was a runner, never had run a 5k or a 10k, but, but it, you know, it's just, we don't often realize what we can do, you know, the potential that we have within us that we can unlock. What, um, if it happened to the race that he started, did, does the race still go on? You know, it still goes on. It still happens every year, the first Sunday in March in the town of Arike. And the, the, the municipalidad, the community of Arike, they've sort of taken on the organization of the race and it continues. There's also a, a marathon length version of it as well. And there's a children's race now too. So it's, uh, it's continuing in a, in a really, in a great way. If somebody's thinking about doing films, and I'm not talking about professional films, I'm thinking of making a film for themselves um, while they're out with their buddies, do you have any sort of advice for that? Um, I would, my biggest piece of advice would be to to have really solid uh, communication with your group about what your intentions are and what level of commitment you expect from them so that everyone is on the same ground, you know, page, so to speak, so that when they go out there, they kind of know what's expected. Like, is this guy just going to be following us with a video camera and filming? And like, it's not really going to change what we're doing. Or are we going to be expected to be directed and told when to start and when to stop and and what to do? Um, And just kind of establish those ground rules right, right from the beginning so that everyone knows, knows what, what to expect. So when you come to a neat spot to get a shot and you're asking them to do it five different times that they understand that's, that's part of the deal. Yeah. I think for myself that happened more in the old days in the beginning. I've, I've kind of somehow been able to get beyond that where I can usually get the shot that I'm looking for in, in one pass. Cause I don't really want to, I want to avoid making people do that too many times that just kind of burns out people. So, um, for example, one of the things that's changed in the backcountry discovery routes program is that in the beginning we were filming the ride as we did it. So a lot of times I didn't know what was coming up ahead around the corner. And so we'd get to an amazing viewpoint and then I'd have to like stop everyone and say, okay, this is good. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. And we'd film it. And then maybe we'd go a half a mile later and there would be an even more amazing viewpoint. Well, what we've learned and now spend our time, doing is, um, I'll go out and pre-scout the route as a filmmaker. 
and I'll make waypoints about locations and take pictures and I'll build a solid filmmaking plan so that when the time comes to do the filming, I know exactly where we're going to stop, what we're going to shoot, what it's going to look like, what I'm looking for. And I can be very clear with the group and just say, okay, stop here, you know, wait for us to get up ahead. We'll radio you and tell you to go. And then, you know, you come through, we'll get the shot and then we'll move on. And so it's very fast and efficient um, in that sense. But that said, on a BDR trip, we're there to make a movie. And that's what we're doing every day that we're on the trail. Our whole energy is focused around being efficient and getting the work done um, so that we can make the best movie possible. And, you know, that's, that's very, that's different than, you know, just filming something, you know, that's a little more free flowing and you don't, you haven't ridden it before. Well, Sterling, I think I can speak for many of us that uh, we're, we're just waiting for your next film to come out. Thank you very much for talking with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, you got it. It's been my pleasure. Well, that was Sterling Noreen, and you can find out more about what he does and the different films that he makes by dropping by his website, www.noreenfilms.com. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. I just want to remind you that this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and Moto Breeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to, of course, to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much for listening. We do appreciate it very much. Remember, you can drop by our website and check out the show notes for this. We do do transcripts now as of January this year, so if you'd like to find some things that have been said in this podcast and you want to know more about it, you want to read it rather than listen to it maybe, I don't know. Drop by the website, check out the show notes for it. It's all there. We also have our other show, ARR Raw. We do that once a month. It's a roundtable talks about motorcycle travel with myself and my uh, five other co-hosts. So drop by that. If you don't know about it already, you can subscribe anywhere that you get podcasts. And of course, that can be found at our website. If you like what we're doing here, you'd like to help out, we have built this on a model of some advertising and listener support to help the, to make the whole thing work, really. Drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Click on the support button. There's a bunch of different ways you can do it. Anything $10 or more is going to get you one of our Adventure Rider Radio stickers for your pannier or toolbox, wherever you want to put it. Um, anything $50 or more is going to get you a mention on Raw. And we also have our, our monthly support system through Patreon that we hooked up um, really through listener requests. So we'd love it if you do that. And of course, the other way you can help out is by spreading the word about the show. Post about it on Facebook or all your social media, anywhere you can. Talk to your friends, spread the word around. Uh, the more listeners we get, the better off it is for everyone. My name is Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Thanks for listening. See you next week. I'm Natasha Martin, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 